invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. You can find that passage in your bulletin or in the Pew Bible in front of you, page 1014. Beginning a new series this morning on the book of 1 Peter. And the title of our series is Elect Exiles. Elect Exiles. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book, this letter of 1 Peter. I pray, Father, that as we make our way through this series, that we would embrace our identity as your elect exiles. That we would grow in our knowledge of who we are in Christ, your chosen people. And that we would grow in our courage and our humility as we seek to live in a world that is opposed to who we are. Father, I pray also that you would help us to see Christ more clearly and that we would be filled with a longing for him and a love for him that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Do you ever feel the tension of living as a Christian in a non-Christian world? Do you ever feel disoriented, not sure what to think or to feel or how to respond to all of the ideas and opinions and pressures that are constantly swirling around you? Do you ever feel a subtle or a not so subtle pressure to soften or to avoid or even to deny your Christian faith? When you feel this tension, how do you respond? Do you withdraw? Do you seek to defend yourself? Do you build up walls and shield yourself from the world and try and find some safe place in the midst of this world? Or do you seek to stand and fight, to fight fire with fire, to hold back the the cultural tide around you by any means possible? Or do you seek to blend in, seek to just fly under the radar? Is there some way in which I can soften my Christian convictions enough That I no longer need to suffer for identifying with Christ. In 1 Peter we're going to learn that this tension between who we are and where we are living is a normal tension. It's the normal pressure of the Christian life. And, And Peter captures this tension by giving us two contrasting words. He calls us elect and exiles. Citizens of heaven that are daily living as exiles in the world. And 1 Peter teaches us how to live into this tension between who we are and where we are living, between our identity as God's elect and our existence as exiles. So on the one hand, we cannot deny we are God's people. We are God's chosen elect people. And yet on the other hand, we cannot walk away from our responsibility to live as God's people in a world that is opposed to our Christian beliefs. We are both elect and exiles. 
main point of this morning's message is this. God calls us to live in the tension between our identity as God's elect and our existence as God's exiles in the world. First point this morning is elect. So this letter opens, as most letters in the New Testament open, with the author of the letter and the audience for the letter. Who wrote it and to whom it was written. So in this case, this letter is written by Peter, a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he's writing to elect exiles of the dispersion that are all over Asia Minor. So Pontus, etc., 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 all the way through. And so Peter is writing, and he mentions this a few, the last few verses of the book. He says he's writing from Babylon. So now this isn't a literal Babylon that he's writing from, but rather this is Peter's shorthand for Rome. So he's saying, I'm writing from Babylon, the capital of the non-Christian world, and I'm writing to all of you exiles, exiles who are spread throughout and dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. So Peter identifies himself as an exile living in Rome or Babylon, writing to other exiles scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And this exile language, it harkens back to the Old Testament exile of Israel when they were exiles in Babylon, when they were living in a foreign land longing for their homeland, the promised land. And it's this language of elect exiles, this imagery of God's chosen people scattered throughout the world that points to the key theme of the book. Peter is in exile, writing to fellow exiles, all living as God's people in the midst of a non-Christian world. And then throughout this letter, he first defines who we are, and then he defines what it's like to live as this people, this elect, exilic people. And then he points us to what it's like to live into that tension and to live as Christ lives as an elect exile in the world. And this existence that he's describing, it, it, maps, it, it, ma- it uh, maps directly onto our existence. We too, like Peter and all of his readers, are elect exiles of the dispersion. So the next thing we notice in these verses is Peter's description of what it means to be elect. So look there with me in verse 1. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So first we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What this means is before the foundation of the world, God set his affection upon us as his people, loved us as his children. Peter, Peter echoes this choosing in 2.9 where he describes the church as a chosen race, a people for God's own possession. And in chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 he refers to us as God's people, living stones that we are chosen and precious, being built together as a spiritual house. Number two, we're also elect through the sanctification of the Spirit. So the sanctification of the Spirit is the setting aside where the Spirit makes us alive, where we are born Again, so the Spirit comes into our lives, gives us a new heart, new minds, new affections for God, and we are now set apart as God's chosen people. Peter describes this in 123 as being born again of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. This is new birth by the Spirit that sets us apart as God's chosen people. Number three, we're also elect for a purpose. We are elect unto something, namely obedience to Christ. So the Spirit, He gives us new hearts and He enables us and He calls us unto obedience to Jesus. As Peter says in 115, we are called to be holy as God Himself is holy. We are God's elect people called to obey Christ. And lastly, God's elect people are sprinkled with Christ's blood. 
This sprinkling with Christ's blood, it's a a picture of the purification of Christ's blood, that we have been redeemed, that we've been purchased, that we've been cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. It also points back to the priesthood in the Old Testament where the priests who mediated the presence of God, they were set apart by having blood sprinkled upon them. And so God calls us to not only be purified and ransomed through this blood, but also to be, as he said, Peter says in 2.9, we are called to be a royal priesthood that, that mediates the presence of God to the world around us. So let's tie all this imagery together. We are God's chosen people. He set his affection upon us. We've been purchased by Christ. We've been born again by the Spirit. And we've been set apart to live lives of holiness and obedience. And as we do so, we function as priests or ambassadors to the world around us, sharing the good news of Christ with the world. Or to say it as Peter says it in 2.9 and far more eloquently than I can, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So this is who we are. This is our identity. We are God's elect. We are God's chosen people. But here's the challenge. Here's the rub. We are God's elect, and yet we're not living in our homeland. Our identity does not match our existence. We are exiles called to live as God's people among a people who do not share our identity. In fact, we are called to live among a people who openly oppose our God and resist living lives of holiness. This brings us to our second point, exiles. Exiles. If being elect defines who we are, being exiles defines where we live. So we, like Peter and his readers, we are exiles of the dispersion. We are aliens living in a foreign land. We may speak the same language. We may share customs and history. But this world is no longer our homeland. When we were born again, our citizenship changed. Our existence is on earth, but our citizenship is now in heaven. So in light of this change in citizenship, how are we to live as God's people in a foreign land. The book of Jeremiah gives us a picture of what is it like to live as exiles among a foreign people. And Jeremiah is writing to the Israelites who are in exile in Babylon. And he gives instructions. Here's how you ought to live as foreigners in a foreign land. It says this in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare." I want you to note a couple of things about this language. The language here, it's not the language of isolation or withdrawal. They're called to put down roots, to live their lives among the people of Babylon. Nor is it the language of blending in and losing your identity. They are to maintain their identity as the people of God. They are to marry and to have children and to to build families, all as Israelites within the people of Babylon. Nor is it the language of hostility or indifference. 
They're called to pray for those among whom they are exiles. And think about what God's asking them to do. These are the people who had destroyed their homeland, taken them as slaves, and taken them to a foreign land. And yet they are to pray for them, and they are to live for the welfare of this people. And I'm sure this exilic mindset would have been hard to love and to pray for and seek the good of those who have taken you captive. And yet that's what God calls them to do. And similarly, God calls us to live the same lives today. And after highlighting our identity as God's elect people, what Peter is going to do in chapters 2, 3, and 4 is he's going to show us what it looks like to live in that tension. What does it feel like to be an elect person living as in exile, and he covers topics like this, the tension of what that will feel like. What does it look like to submit to governing authorities who are opposed to Christ and his righteous laws? The Israelites experienced this in Babylon. We experience this as Christians in exile. What does it look like to live as a husband and wife when one spouse doesn't share your faith? How should we respond when those in authority in our workplaces treat us unjustly? What does it look like to live in a society that is openly opposed to God's call to holiness, mocking us when we do not join them in their sin? How should we respond when our attempts at doing good, when we're praying for this city, when we're seeking the welfare of this city, when the response to that is hatred and opposition and mockery for seeking the good of those Christ came to save? And this, this tension that Peter describes, it, it impacts us as well, and, and it will always lead to moments and decisions in our lives when we will have to reckon with what is it like to live as an exile and it's challenging and it's difficult for instance the the moment when a neighbor or co-worker or classmate mocks christianity not knowing that you yourself are a christian and you have to decide how am i going to respond the moment in the locker room at school when your friends are talking about sexual exploits and it's obvious to everyone you have nothing to say because you're choosing to live a life of holiness that's different than the world. The moment when someone asks you what you believe about human sexuality and gender and you know no matter how humbly you respond, if you respond honestly, you're going to receive mockery or opposition or even being, being accused of hatred and bigotry. The moment when you turn away from the lewd picture or the crass joke because you believe that women should be treated with honor and dignity. The decision you make to displease your co-workers and forgo extra money because you know that the way you're living and your work habits are crushing your marriage and your family and you have chosen to listen to God's call to be a present spouse and loving parent. Just the decisions you make to not fit in whether that be the career or the education choices you make, how busy your life is, what movie you choose not to watch, what it looks like when you choose to dress modestly when all around you are not doing so, and your unwillingness to engage in gossip and slander. When we seek to live lives as God's elect people in a foreign land, as exiles, we will have moments and we will be called to make decisions that make a distinction between who we are and the world in which we are living. And that will be a tense and difficult moment for each and every one of us. Called to live in the tension between who we are and our true, our true home and where we are currently living in exile. This brings us to our last point, which is living in the tension. Living in the tension. Each of us are going to be called to respond to this tension. And each of us are tempted to respond to that tension in different ways. 
I recently read a blog post by our own Chris Colquitt, and it was provocatively entitled, All Christians Are Losers. All Christians Are Losers. That's a catchy title. I'm sure you got a few clicks from that. Uh, is this, in this post, Chris highlighted two ways that we as Christians are often tempted to respond to the tension of living in this world. And even better, the, the illustration or these temptations, he takes them from the life of Peter, the person who wrote our letter. And he said the two temptations are this. The temptation to take up the sword and fight, or the temptation to warm ourselves beside the fire of the world. The first temptation is taking up our swords. So Peter, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, was in the garden with Christ, and all these folks came to arrest Jesus. And what, Jesus, or what Peter decided to do is he was going to resist what was happening. And so he took up a sword, cut off the ear of the high priest, and ultimately was rebuked by Jesus. And what Peter uh, was forgetting is what he had just heard Jesus say and what Jesus had said many times before, that Jesus came into the world to suffer, that Jesus' kingdom and our citizenship are not of this world, and that Jesus came that he might be handed over to these authorities, that he might be convicted unjustly, that he might be crucified, and that he might rise again for our salvation. Peter had forgotten that the kingdom of Christ is not the kingdom of of this world. And so he took up a sword to prevent the very thing that Christ came to do. For some of us, when we face the challenge of living as exiles, we want to fight back. We want to fight fire with fire. And so we, we take up our swords. We begin to circle the wagons. We call for manning the barricades because we want to fight back against the world. But when we do so, we are forgetting something. We're forgetting this. The world will always be the world. This isn't our home. Our citizenship isn't here. And to use the language of Jeremiah 29, the sword and fighting through violence will never be the means that Christ uses to bring about the welfare of the city. Now we are called to push back. We are called to live distinct lives. But our means of persuasion is never through power and it's never through violence. Rather, our influence comes through suffering injustice well. Through living distinct and holy lives before a watching and oftentimes mocking world. And by always being ready to gently and respectfully give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. These are the tools of our resistance. It is not the sword it is joining Christ in his holy, suffering witness. The second temptation is warming ourselves by the fire. So just a few hours after Peter takes up the sword, just as Peter always does, he swings from one end to the other. So he takes up the sword, he's rebuked by uh, Jesus for doing so. He then follows Jesus at a distance to the high priest's house where Jesus is on trial. But rather going, than going in like John, he stays outside and he warms himself by the fire. And as he's doing so, he begins to get questions from those who are gathered there. Aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? Didn't we just see you in the Garden of Gethsemane now when we arrested him? Your accent, you sound like a Galilean. Aren't, are you sure that you're not one of Jesus' disciples? And to each and every one of these questions, the man who is so bold as to pick up a sword is now a coward and denies Jesus three times. When living as exiles, it's often tempting to warm ourselves by the fire of the world, to cozy up to it, 
And our hope in doing so is to protect ourselves. To protect ourselves from the mockery and the the tension, the difficulty of identifying with Christ in the midst of a world that denies him. And the temptation of warming ourselves by the fire, it's the temptation to blend in. To grasp for respectability. To soften the edges of our beliefs. To make them more palatable to a world in opposition to us. We're a congregation of professionals. We're used to a high level of success and respectability. Some of us are academics who need the affirmation of their administration and colleagues. There are a number of young people here who are trying to define who they are while living under the intense pressure that if they step outside of the mold at all, they will face mockery from others. And so we think if we can just fly under the radar, if we can mask the accent of our Christian lives, that we will be able to avoid the cost of associating with Christ as his chosen people. And so, like chameleons, we blend in with the world around us, hoping to avoid the cost of identifying with him. But friends, I believe Christ calls us to more. He calls us to emulate Christ by holding in tension who we are as God's elect people and where we are as exiles in the world. And it's Christ himself who shows us what it looks like to be both elect and exiles. Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, he humbled himself and he came to us. He embraced exile from the presence of the Father in order to take on flesh, to leave his homeland and to come to us in order to walk among us. And each and every day of his earthly life, he lived as an exile from his heavenly home. Every day he prayed for the good of this world. He lived a holy and distinct life in the face of opposition. He every day sought the welfare of this world in which he had been placed. Yet every day he lived estranged from the world, suffering at the hands of the world, rejected and mocked. And this exile, it culminated in his utter and complete rejection. All those close to him fled from him and denied him. He was convicted unjustly in a court of law and condemned to death. He suffered a death on a cross for sins that he never committed. And he ultimately died to pay for the very ones who took his life. Christ never compromised his holiness. He never failed to live a distinct life in opposition to the world. And yet he never took up arms to defend himself or as a means of persuading. He never grasped for power. He never forced himself upon the world, and yet he came to suffer, to bear witness, to live a holy life, and to give his life for those he came to save. And it's through Christ's suffering, his embracing of exile, that he now offers to us the citizenship that we now have in heaven. It's through Christ's suffering and his subsequent glory that we have all of the privileges of being God's elect. We have new life. We're cleansed from our sins. We have the ability to live holy and distinct lives empowered by him to bear witness to the work that he himself has accomplished. Christ calls us to follow him in a life of suffering so that we might too know the riches of his glory. But this will require us to resist temptation. The temptation to warm ourselves by the fire of the world. Rather, he calls us to embrace the suffering of living holy and distinct lives as exiles in this world. 
It also means resisting the temptation to take up the sword and fight. Rather, we are to embrace suffering, even unjust suffering. Embracing a humble and gospel-centered witness that we are willing to suffer for those around us as Christ did in order to bear witness to a salvation that this world can never take away from any of us. Christ calls us to embrace suffering, to trust our vindication to him, that one day he will come again and make all things right. This calling is difficult. It will be challenging. We will succeed and we will fail. But the promise we have is that God is with us in the midst of this tension, that he is always with us by the power of his spirit. Peter ends verse 2 with this benediction and it is where I end. And he points to the grace and the peace that are always with us in this tension. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Or as the New Living Translation says, may God give you more and more grace and peace. Friends, there is grace to live in the tension between being elect and being in exile. And there is even peace that Christ grants us in the midst of that tension. It is abundant grace and it's abundant peace. And it's always sufficient for the life that God calls us to. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have set us apart by your spirit. That you have set your affection upon us and chosen us. And that you have sprinkled us with the blood of Christ. Cleansing us and setting us apart as your ambassadors to the world. Father, may we as a church, may we as Grace Presbyterian Church on the North Shore of Chicago, may we embrace your call to be your elect people. And may we embrace your call to be your elect people in exile, living lives of holiness and humble witness as Christ himself lived a holy life and lived for our salvation. In Christ's name, amen.